Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton hosts the federal liberal cabinet this week. I speak with the fiancé of a man who died in an industrial fire in St. Catharines. Still no place for tiny homes in Hamilton. We get you ready for the Toronto International Boat Show. And is this it for quarterback Tom Brady? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. I always consult with 12 other premiers. Uh, on this and it's not going to be a, a, a one-off for Ontario another for someone else we we've all agreed all the premiers we all have to work together and uh, stay united and that's exactly what we're going to do that is the voice of Ontario Premier Doug Ford who says there will not be individual deals on health care funding between the provinces and the federal government well, that's, that's his side of the story. The statement rings pretty loudly as the uh, Liberal Cabinet retreat begins today here in Hamilton. To talk about that, here's Peter Grafe, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. Peter, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Uh, premiers and health ministers across this country want Ottawa to boost health care transfers, and they've said it loud and clear from the current uh, 22% to about 35%. There has been talk that we may be close to a deal. What are the chances that this could be a key piece of the Liberal budget this spring? Well, I mean, I think for the Liberals, they would like to see it to be a a key piece of the budget, uh, although they probably don't want it to be as expensive as the Premiers uh, have put forward. Um, So, I mean, the fact that, uh, but at the same time, the Premiers want the money too, so that they can have it in their budgets. And as, you know, we're getting to, you know, closer and closer to budget time, uh, they want the predictability. So I think there's, there's good reasons to believe that in the next four to six weeks, we're going to, to see this logjam broken. I mean, already over over the past few days, there's been a lot of indication that both on the federal and provincial side, they think they, they're within a, a space where they can get to a deal. Premier Ford has said there won't be individual deals. It's not really up to him because, as we've seen in the past, other premiers or territorial leaders have taken what they could get from the federal government, thinking that's the best that they could get. Do you see a more united front this time around? Uh, somewhat. I mean, in 2017, they, they were saying the same thing on, on the Monday and then on the Wednesday, uh, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick were signing uh, deals with the federal government well below what the provincial common front was. So, you know, provinces that are, are hard up financially are more likely to, to make uh, deals with the federal government. But at the same time, I think those those provinces have also seen that the deals they got were part of what created the, the problems in these years, that they aren't enough money to really deal with uh, the increase of inflation in the uh, healthcare sphere. So I think we're likely to see a common front and come to some kind of overall framework agreement, but that will then be followed by bilateral agreements with each province setting out how, you know, whatever sharing of information or adoption of a particular health information system, which seems to be important for the federal government in this negotiation, how those are going to be rolled out in, in each individual province. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Peter Grafe, professor of political science at McMaster University. We're talking about the liberal government retreat that begins today in Hamilton and some of the big topics that they'll be discussing, Healthcare being one of them. I've always wondered, or at least over the last little while, wondered why Trudeau has not met with the premiers and territorial leaders to hammer out some kind of health care deal at a, a national summit. Is, is it because it wouldn't be a political win for him? Well, I mean, I think part of it is is the idea that you save the prime minister for if the negotiations really just can't get over that last hump, right, then you bring the premiers and the prime minister into the room to try and, and cut a deal politically. That That's probably part of it. 
you know, another part of it is, uh, you know, a meeting such as this is uh, all the premiers ganging up on the prime minister in some ways. And so often it doesn't, you know, look great on the prime minister. And, and we have seen an addition in in uh, intergovernmental relations in recent years, more tendency of provinces to 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 try and grandstand at these events uh, or make claims that, you know, put uh, the, the, the prime minister in a box. So there's a number of reasons why he wouldn't want to come forward. But I, I think you're right that a lot of it is that this is going to look like a victory and he wants to come forward and, uh, you know, wear the victory and not, you know, any potential failures in the negotiation leading to that. The uh, Liberal cabinet retreat begins today in Hamilton on the agenda. Cost of living and job creation priorities are apparently at the top of the list, not health care. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, I think the real top of the list in having it in Hamilton is to get more exposure in the greater Toronto area where, uh, you know, the Trudeau government finds an important source of, of its seats. I mean, that's a huge chunk of why it's government. And so, uh, you know, I think talking about healthcare is a bit dangerous at the moment because I think part of getting to this deal has been being quiet on some of the moves to uh, partial privatization that uh, Doug Ford seems to be pushing towards and which might upset part of the liberal voting base. So you probably don't want to spend so much time talking about healthcare and getting drawn into that. Uh, but certainly the cost of living uh, issues are important for you know, a large number of, of Canadians. And so to be seen to be responsive to that uh, you know, will be important. And you know, they have some achievements in this past year moving forward on dental care, although with a, a kind of a pretty poorly conceived uh, implementation of it. Um, so you know, they have things like that and improvements of the work, Canadian worker benefit that they can point to. And, and presumably, they'll be thinking of some other ways at the margins of this budget uh, to presumably put a bit more money in the in the pockets of lower income Canadians. Just got about 30 seconds. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh hinted that, you know, he might want to pull out his Jenga piece on the liberal NDP supply and confidence agreement unless, you know, the government addressed the health care crisis. Do you, do you think he's close to making this move? Uh, I don't think so, really. Uh, I mean, I think for, for Mr. Singh, the danger is being seen as being too close to Mr. Trudeau. And, uh, you know, and not have the independence to say, no, uh, you know, I oppose certain things this government does. And in fact, some of the things that government does are the result of the pressure I've put on it. So for him, it's a, an issue, I think, always of trying to show that he's not the same as a liberal government. And on health care, that's a strong issue, I think, for his base to, to be seen as, as pushing the government. Peter, thanks for your time. Enjoy the day. And you too. That is Peter Grafe, political science professor at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Important topic that uh, the federal cabinet probably should be concentrating on, and that is feeding our kids and feeding our kids at school. At least those who don't have the ability to have a nutritious and, hey, delicious breakfast to get them going and learning and functioning on all cylinders. So as the federal liberal cabinet meets today in Hamilton, there are continued calls to deliver on a promise to fund a nationwide school food program. Here to talk about it is the coordinator of the Coalition for Healthy School Food, Debbie Field. Debbie, good morning. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having this important conversation. Yeah, thanks for joining us. The government has promised to fund this program. What is the status of that? Well, they've uh, promised to come in and partner with the provinces and territories and other funders. Uh, and we're hoping, as you say, that they're talking about it right now. 
the Liberals uh, promised a billion dollars over five years uh, in their election platform. And then last year, we were really happy when two ministers, hopefully two ministers who are in Hamilton, uh, Minister of Agriculture and Agri-Food, Bebo, and Minister of Children, Families and Children Services, Gould, uh, were mandated to actually start a national school food program. How big of the need is, I'm assuming the need is gargantuan. Yeah, well, it's actually uh, for all kids. Uh, All kids need to have healthy food during their school day. You know, we wouldn't have a conference where you and I were invited to come and spend the whole day unless we had access to good food. And certainly our kids need to eat uh, while they're at school and learning or they won't learn. And um, right now, uh, as I said, the provinces put in some money, uh, but there haven't been a cost of living increase in Ontario uh, and many of the provinces uh, in years. And as you can imagine, when you and I are going to the stores, we can see how the prices of foods are going up. So you can imagine uh, in Hamilton, it's Taste Buds, a great organization that is uh, helping to deliver an amazing number of programs, and they just don't have enough money to buy the healthy food. Yeah, one of those programs from Hamilton Taste Buds, the Nourish Kids Now campaign. We have the the Bulldogs Foundation here in Hamilton that uh, is uh, raising money, collecting donations, and then offering food in a school setting to kids who wouldn't normally have that. The the impact is huge. Yeah, 21,000 children, uh, 118 programs, 105 schools. I'm sure as people are listening, uh, many listeners have kids who are going to, to schools where there was a great uh, mid-morning snack or breakfast, uh, you know, uh, a mini bagel with cream cheese, uh, an apple, uh, cheese, uh, you know, all things that our kids need uh, to learn and be healthy. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Debbie Field, coordinator with the Coalition for Healthy School Food, talking about impact, the impact of inflation on food prices. You mentioned they've gone up. How has that Uh, put a dent in what this national school food program is trying to do? Well, it has just uh, highlighted the urgency of the federal cabinet uh, making a decision, hopefully in the next couple days, to finally join uh, the other G7 countries and actually, truthfully, most of the countries in the world in having a harmonized national school food program. So it's not the federal government funding it on their own, but partnering with provinces and territories and bringing some cash, which is needed right now because of those uh, increases to the food prices that Taste Buds and all the great providers uh, are needing all across the country. Is there a hint that the government will come through? Uh, Yes, I think so. Uh, You know, I think that uh, we've heard very good things from a consultation process that the federal government uh, did. Uh, Minister Gould has said that her government uh, has provided child tax benefits, which has made it possible for more families to afford healthy food. And then, of course, uh, the signature national child care program uh, and that school food hopefully is the next one. Um, And we're very hopeful. You know, there's always been this conversation in Canada about jurisdiction. Education is provincial and territorial. But so uh, was child care debate about the jurisdiction. And uh, well-meaning people can get through jurisdictions if they work together. Absolutely. I can't imagine if we didn't have some kind of food program in schools, how kids would be. I mean, they, they would be in a much worse place. Yeah. And, you know, COVID is interesting, right? Because before COVID, uh, we we always knew school food programs were important, but we never knew that they were an essential service. 
in the same way that kids need to go to school, uh, they really, and missed it when the schools were closed, they really missed the mid-morning snack or in some parts of Canada, it's more of a lunch. Like that's the other thing. In Canada, we have a lot of different models. Uh, some communities are delivering a breakfast program, some a snack, some a lunch. My own few as a parent uh, activist who helped formed a lunch program for my own kids uh, is we, we need all three, actually. Kids need to eat several times a day while they're at school. Well, it'd be nice if the federal de- government does follow through on its campaign promise and uh, offer this funding. Debbie, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. Debbie Field, coordinator with the Coalition for Healthy School Food, the largest school food network in this country. There's 235 plus members, uh, including numerous ones that deliver school food programs here in Hamilton. I think it's vital for the government to step up to the plate, not only, uh, you know, fulfill a campaign promise, but help nourish our children in the school setting. Many of them go to school on an empty stomach. Uh, because back home, they don't have the, the resources to fill the fridge, to fill the pantry. And uh, so these programs are vital. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This past Saturday, a vigil was held at Lakeside Park in Port Dalhousie following the death of Ryan Conkin. You're probably hearing that name thinking, that sounds familiar. Well, he was a 37-year-old man who died after he suffered serious injuries in an industrial fire at Sonic's Products back on January 12th in St. Catharines. A GoFundMe campaign has been raised, uh, has been uh, started and raising a lot of money. And he leaves behind a 15-year-old son, Vincent, has a fiancé who we're going to talk to now. And her name is Natalia Sepulveda-Lastra, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Natalia, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. First off, we'd like to share our sincerest, uh, sincerest condolences to you and your family during this uh, incredibly difficult time. How are you and how is the family doing? Well, really, it's um, highs and lows. I think after Saturday's vigil, it did bring a lot of peace to all of us, just being able to kind of give him the proper send off and having all his friends come by and everyone who who met him, even if it was just in passing. I think that's what's helped a lot. But there are those moments that, you know, you look around and you'd expect him to be there and you you look at his chair and you look at the door and you look at the kitchen and it just, that's the moments where it all hits. What do you want our listeners to know about Ryan? He was the most genuine amazing person I've ever met. Um, he always would say, I'm rough to the eyes. But I never saw that. I always saw his heart. And everybody could feel it from the second that they met him. Um, he would pull you out of your little your your little shell and he'd he'd ask you how you're doing and he'd go and pet your dogs and he'd hang out with the neighbors. He just wanted to become one with everyone, with our community, and just live a simple, happy life. He was happy. How did you guys meet? Well, it was almost a little a little bit like our own little love story there. We met, it was Sunset at Sunset Beach, and we had both walked down to the very, very, very end of the beach where usually people don't go to. I usually got there through a trail. And it turned out he was going down the opposite trail. 
And I went there to meditate after I was having a, a bit of a rough day. And he had a, a hard day at work. So he went down there as well. And as I was meditating in the water, just kind of said, I'm going to release control. I'm not going to force anything else in my life. I'm just going to let go. And I turn around and I see him walking to my spot and I'm just swimming and I keep looking like peeking out of the water. I'm like, "Mm, he better not sit there. And he sits right next to it. And apparently he was messaging his sister the same thing. Hey, some girls in my fishing spot. So I sat down and eventually I realized maybe he's not going to, maybe he's not going to leave. So I decided to get out of the water. And as I got closer to him, I just decided to say, it looks like we have the whole beach to ourselves. (laughs) And you did. (laughs) And we sat down and we talked and it's just, we clicked instantly. That is pretty cool. We got about 90 seconds. We're in discussion with Natalia Sepulveda Lastra, the fiance of Ryan Konkin, who tragically died in a fire a couple of weeks ago. Um, Ryan's sister, Nicole, has launched a GoFundMe fundraiser, which has already raised $16,000. The goal was ten grand, And apparently this money is going to Ryan and your dream of operating a food truck. Yes, yes. Um, so we had bought this little cart in November. Um, I had just turned 24. I was kind of getting those uh I was feeling down because I wasn't sure what was going on with you know with my life and everything we were I was trying to do plans but you know you kind of took analysis of it and so Ryan and I talked about this all the time so we decided we bought the little coffee cart with some help from my mom and he went to check everything about it and this was going to be our stepping stone. We always wanted a little place for everybody to come and hang out and just for him to sell his fries. And he just had so many ideas and missed the kitchens and so passionate about cooking and just sharing a meal with someone. Sounded like a wonderful man. He's got a great legacy and obviously you have a lifelong memories with him. Natalia, we'll have to leave it there as we're out of time. I wish you nothing but the best and uh, good luck down the road. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. That is Natalia Sepulveda Lastra, the fiance of Ryan Konkin. You can contribute to the GoFundMe page. Just Google Ryan Konkin GoFundMe and uh, you can give to that fundraiser. The cause of the fire, by the way, still under investigation. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are no perfect sites. And my concern is that this has taken considerable staff resources it has taken considerable hats resources to get to even get us to this point at what point do we just say this may not happen that is the voice of ward four councillor tammy huang responding to the latest developments regarding hamilton's tiny homes project the hamilton alliance for tiny shelters was at city hall looking for some support and and a location for this this idea but we're no further ahead now than we've, I guess, ever been before. Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction and a member of the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Hello, Tom. How are you? Hey, Rick. Good morning. This has got to be frustrating. Still no location for this uh, pilot project. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you said it yourself. It feels like minus seven out there. There are about 1,600 people experiencing homelessness in Hamilton right now, out on the streets, living in alleyways, uh, in alcoves. And 
this is a project that that really tries to stabilize people, get them warm, get them uh, healthy, so that they can transition into more permanent forms of housing. Um, but you're right, it is frustrating because we've been at this a year now, and we still haven't been able to land on a site. But I would disagree. I think we are further ahead, uh, further ahead than we have ever been. There are hundreds of people in Hamilton who are behind this project. We've raised o- over $300,000 now just from private donations. And, and there is passion, uh, behind this idea to, to do something, uh, to, to help our, our homeless neighbors. So I think we are further ahead. We just need to find that spot, uh, to, to set up the first tiny cabin community. I, I will agree from that standpoint. You are way ahead of the game and what you were just a year ago, but, when you look at all the options that you have presented to city councillors, whether it's the Old Dominion Glass site, uh, Stewart Street near the CN Rail Yard, um, a vacant lot on Barton Street East, or John A. McDonald High School, Cathedral Park alongside the 403, there's, there's just five examples of where this thing could be housed. What's the holdup? Yeah, and I, I really do think... You know, we are being very careful, uh, as, as a city to, to ensure we find the right spot. Now, this is a, an idea that's, that's been modeled in other communities across Canada. Most closest to us, Kitchener has more than, uh, 50 cabins set up in, in a couple of spots now. And, uh, their regional municipality is investing significant, uh, dollars in, in the idea because they see it does work. Um, I, th- I think we need to really look at this idea as something innovative. Yes, it's a pilot project, uh, but it can really help people who otherwise can't access the traditional shelter system for various reasons. Maybe they're in a couple, they don't want to break up. Maybe they have a beloved pet and, um, you know, they, they wouldn't want to give that pet up uh, and, and, and so end up staying on the street. Maybe there's concerns about violence at the shelters or, or health concerns. So there's a lot of reasons people don't use the traditional shelter system. And besides that, a lot of them are, are, are full up sometimes. And, uh, this is a new way of looking at stabilizing people who are homeless. And, uh, we really think it can work. It provides wraparound services and, uh, sort of the healthcare needs of, of, of the residents. And, and, um, you know, it's it, it's really taking a leap of faith, I think, that we, we can try this new idea and, and just see how it rolls out. Tom, we've got about 90 seconds. What's next? Where do you go from here? Yeah, well, we're going to continue to to look for sites. Uh, we think one of those three sites might be viable, particularly the Tiffany Barton lands. Uh, but we're going to start talking to uh, community members, I think, to to see if if that might be um, a viable uh, site for for this first tiny cabin community. But if there's others out there in the community, faith groups or or private landowners who think this might be a good project on on a parcel of land they they own. Let us know. We'd be more than happy to talk to them. Well, it's a great idea. It just needs a landing spot. Tom, appreciate your time today. Thank you, Rick. Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. They've raised about $300,000 through community donations to get this off the ground, but they need the city to say, okay, yeah, you can you know, launch this at you know, Site X, whatever that place is. And they've been doing this for about a year already. There's, There's got to be... There's got to be a, a place in the city where this can happen. I know there's some nimbyism at play, but not in my backyard crowd, and I get that. But at the end of the day, I think this is a, a pilot project worth uh, undertaking.
That is for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Toronto International Boat Show. It's Canada's largest indoor boating event, and it's back for its 65th anniversary. It actually kicked off on Friday. First in-person show, more than two years. That's exciting. And it runs until January 29th at the Entercare Center Exhibition Place in TO. And joining us now to talk about it is Linda Waddell, show director with the Toronto International Boat Show. Linda, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thank you. I'm great. What's happening at the boat show this year? Well, you got thousands of enthusiastic, happy people off the top. That's the start. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's really, really a positive environment. Everyone is so thrilled to be back in person. I, I can't say enough what a different environment is to have all these people come back in person and to be celebrating 65 years. And uh, boy, it's a good feeling. Uh, I understand it was just on the website over the weekend. Hundreds of boats are on display. Yes, yes, close to a thousand boats. Wow. There are thousands of accessories and services all under one roof at the Entercare Center at Exhibition Place. And people really are at the show planning for summer. People are beginning their shopping. They're beginning to buy and top up what they need for cottaging and boating season. It's just, it's a very happy, positive place. And uh, people are getting ready for boating. It's almost like a an, an auto show. They have the Toronto International Auto Show where they have, you know, hundreds of vehicles on display, including antique and classic cars, those, those exotic cars. Is it the same at the boat show as well? There's similarities. The difference is probably retail. Um, our, our show is a selling show. Exhibitors are there to uh, help negotiate with deals and manufacturers, incentives. People actually buy right at the show. They buy their boats. They buy canoes. Uh, kayaks, paddle boards, life jackets, electronics, fishing equipment. So the intent really is that if you decide on everything that you're doing now in, in January, by the time May comes and you're ready to be on the water, you're ready to go. Uh, because some categories you need to pre-buy and dealers need and marinas need time to get the boats ready for May. So the retail environment is different. Linda Waddell is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Linda is the show director of the Toronto International Boat Show. It is back for its 65th anniversary at the Entercare Centre Exhibition Place, and it runs until January the 29th. If you want to go, get your tickets online at torontoboatshow.com. Electric boats, this is a thing? This is a new thing, really, for our industry. Uh, Definitely embracing... Uh, everyone top of mind with the environment. We've got over 15 exhibitors that have introduced first time ever electric boats, electric engines. Uh, it's very innovative. There's um, an interest across all manufacturers to evolve into this space as, as many uh, companies are. So that's a noticeable difference that you'll see on the show floor is new products, especially in the category of electric. What is the cost difference or the main difference between a a, a normal boat, if you will, and an electric boat? That varies. It depends if you're looking for something like a personal watercraft um, or if you're looking something that takes people out. Um, We're learning and evolving into what price differences are, similar to the car industry where the technology that the companies are using to make these makes it a little more expensive than a traditional uh, historical type of boat. So it varies by manufacturer. Uh, you also have the world's largest indoor lake and a live lake webcam to boot. 
Yes. So we have a million gallons of water inside the Coca-Cola Coliseum, which is where the Marlies play. And you can come and watch wakeboard shows, water ski shows. You can watch stand-up paddleboard races coming up this weekend. Uh, if you want to go for a boat ride on a canoe or a kayak or a pedal boat, you can come and sign up as soon as you arrive and get a time slot and go for free. If you want to learn to wakeboard, we actually teach people every day. There's time slots available. Uh, if you've never wakeboarded or you have done it before and you want to try it, um, you're in the water with a dry suit on with professional coaches that teach you. It's an incredible incredible thing to come and see and participate in indoors in January. You also have a, a great Canadian fish tank. Can you fish at the boat show or is this just a, just a watch? The pros do the fishing. So <laughs> they're up on a tank with all different kinds of species and they teach the public and, and uh, you learn t tips and um, new products and uh, categories of fish and how to, how to, Find where they are, which is a very popular thing for many attendees. <laughs> and you also have a bunch of free seminars, which is kind of cool because you can just go and check out and, and learn a lot of new stuff. Over 300 seminars. Uh, some of them are about exploring, whether it's Ontario or further. Uh, people like to explore and go away on their boat. Uh, if you're a new boater and you're interested in understanding about the lifestyle and want to ask questions to unbiased experts. There's seminars for that category. People that go on journeys, uh, the Great Loop, for example, is a, a, a nine month to a year uh, boating, um, boating opportunity that many Canadians aspire to do. We've got a family speaking on that. So it's a range, range, huge of, of topics of interest. Something for everyone. Linda Waddell is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, Linda is the show director of the Toronto International Boat Show. We're profiling it here on GMH on 900 CHML. It runs until January 29th at the Intercare Centre at Exhibition Place. And you also have a Go Transit Boat Show combo pack. And that's quite, uh, uh, you know, uh, handy for people in this area. We have partnered with Go Transit and... It, it is so great to see people transitioning from being in their cars to come in to the city of Toronto. It's easy, it's fast, it's convenient, and we've bundled a combo ticket that has a boat show ticket and a go transit. So any way, one way, each, like one way in, one way out, you can um, buy a ticket online on our website and it saves you time and money and you don't have to worry about parking. It drops right off at the exhibition station. So especially from your region, it makes it very convenient. That is a great, uh, a great initiative for sure. What is your favorite part of the show? Seeing so many people be happy. You know, it's, we, we sell something in our industry that makes people happy. That is spending time with family, being on the water. It's an escape. Uh, the boating lifestyle is an escape from stress for people, from their busy, hectic lives. And to see kids with their parents and teenagers doing things with their grandparents, it's multi-generational. People do it all together. You don't have to be financially wealthy. That's It's an activity that can be budget-friendly. Uh, you can buy something entry-level and smaller, up to luxury size and, and budgets. It's, it's an incredible thing to see people get excited about summer and wanting to plan and enjoy the boating lifestyle. If you want to check out the Toronto International Boat Show at the Intercare Centre Exhibition Place this week or this coming weekend, get your tickets now online at torontoboatshow.com. Linda, thanks for the time today and uh, best of luck with the show. Thank you so much, Rick.
That's Linda Waddell, show director with the Toronto International Boat Show. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, now that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have been ousted from the NFL playoffs, the GOAT has left the building. But is quarterback Tom Brady going to retire again? And will it be for good this time? Great article in the Washington Post. The headline, Tom Brady is messing with the clock and it's about to get awkward. We're going to chat with the guy who wrote that, Jerry Brewer, sports columnist at the Washington Post, who joins us now. Jerry, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing great. Uh, Why is it about to get awkward? I think at the end of uh, a player's career, when when they get so far removed from what we've known and, and become so much uh, a bit of a nomad, uh, that's where it gets incredibly awkward. Uh, it's very clear that Tom Brady does not have a true endpoint in mind, and Father Time is undefeated, and so you fear where this is headed if he hangs on too long. He's 45. Some would argue that maybe, just maybe, this past year was the definition of hanging on too long. We'll see, right? Like, I I thought his last year in New England, in which he struggled more than he struggled this year, especially in the second half of that year with the Patriots, and then also they, they lose in the first, in the opening round of the playoffs there, and he threw... Uh, a bad interception to end his Patriots career. I thought Tom Brady was closer to the end then than he is now. Uh, what I know about him is for is this. Uh, he can still be an accurate quarterback. He can make the throws. Obviously, he's got just an advanced understanding of the game and a great mental edge uh, as a competitor. So he can still play. The difference is is that Tom Brady can't carry a team for as long as he used to. So he needs to be on a team in which all the circumstances are proper around him for him to succeed. It's not just what he's going to be able to do. It's how you build a team around him. How good are your, are your receivers? Do you have a tight end who's a great safety valve for him? Do you have a running game? Do you have a defense? Most importantly, can your offensive line keep him clean? Because even the threat of pressure right now makes him panic in ways that we haven't seen his entire career. So the conditions have to be perfect in order for Tom Brady to thrive. How many NFL teams can create that those conditions when the salary cap is hard and very onerous for you to build complete teams? Yeah, there's not many of those teams around in the league. And if they have all those pieces, they probably have a stud at quarterback as well. And they're challenging for Super Bowls. And that brings me to the next question is, you know, if Tom Brady sees a situation and it might not be in Tampa Bay where he's looking, uh, you know, I can play another maybe year or two or three or who knows how much longer. But will we be a winner? And we know that Tom Brady is an ultimate competitor. He's got the all time wins record. He's won the most Super Bowls. We know all that. But. Will he be happy in a losing situation? I'm not sure of that. No, I think Ryan Clark uh, from ESPN said it perfectly about Tom Brady. He doesn't play to compete. He plays to excel. And he's not going to do this again. This is as low of a bar as he's ever had in his career, going 8-9 and in the regular season, 8-10 and overall, and losing in the wild card game. He doesn't want that situation again. The question is, uh, 
is there. Uh, number one, uh, could the Bucks quickly retool and reshape this roster so that they could be a Super Bowl contender again? I think their time has passed. Therefore, I think that if Brady is going to continue to play, he's going to go to a new situation. Top of that list is likely the Las Vegas Raiders, where his former offensive coordinator in New England, Josh McDaniels, is the head coach. The Raiders have a great running back in Josh Jacobs. They have an elite wide receiver in Devontae Adams, a very good top five in the NFL tight end in Darren Waller when he's healthy. They have a great possession receiver in Hunter Renfro. Uh, offensive line needs to get better, however. Defense, which is one of the bottom five defenses in the NFL, needs to get dramatically better. And even though Brady is familiar with Josh Jacobs, Josh Jacobs is a huge departure from the head coaches that he's won Super Bowls with. Bill Belichick, which he won six of them, and Bruce Arians, now retired, uh, who was the head coach when Tampa won two years ago. Josh McDaniels is a coach who has shown that despite his offensive acumen, has not been able to lead an entire locker room to great things. Is that a situation in which Brady can cover for the flaws of his own head coach and some of the flaws in the roster? I'm not certain. And if it's not the Las Vegas Raiders, the question becomes, then where? Huh. And I think that's where it gets really complicated for Tom Brady. He might have to make a decision as if to say, this is pretty good, and I hope I have a chance to excel as opposed to, I know that if you put me on this team, it is going to compete for a Super Bowl. Just got about a minute with uh, Jerry Brewer, a sports columnist with the Washington Post. You can check out his article online, WashingtonPost.com. If you're a betting man, and I'm not sure you are, Jerry, but if you were, would you bet that Tom Brady is back in some uniform in 2023? Yes, I would. And I'm going <laughs> to make a crazy claim. Okay. Even though they've said they're committed, to Tua Tungvaluwa, I think somehow he's going to wind up as the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins. Uh-oh. I think they've wanted him for quite some time, and I think the Dolphins are that crazy uh, to give up on a 20-something quarterback and try to get one ring from Tom Brady. Well, you're speaking to a Dolphins fan here, Jerry. You got me partially excited <laughs> and partially distressed at the same time. So I'll leave it there. I appreciate your commentary, and I will talk to you down the road for sure. All right. Anytime. Nice to talk to you. That is Jerry Brewer, sports reporter, Washington Post. Now, we're talking about rings in the Miami Dolphins. Yeah, it gets me excited. <laughs> there's a, there are ways away from getting a Super Bowl championship. And if Tom Brady's a quarterback, there's no guarantee it's going to happen. Ask the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Circa 2022-2023. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.